The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Lynn Castillo-Harper. She is the author of On Vanishing. She serves as the Minister of Older Adults at Riverside Church in New York City. Lynn, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's a pleasure. Well, of course, uh, you know, usually I wouldn't have to ask most guests, but in the last six months, I have to ask the question is, uh, how are things faring with you during this pandemic? Well, you know, we just keep breathing in and out. It's It's been really hard, as I'm sure most most listeners are feeling this too, this kind of the long weeks have turned into long months and ministering with a vulnerable population with older adults in New York City, you know, for the first several weeks, it was just sort of bracing each call, you know, how are folks doing? And now that the numbers are down, um, I can breathe a little bit more easily, but, you know, it is this sort of moment where there's constant vigilance. And I think as ministers or those of us in caring professions, we have to 
really take time for ourselves. So I'm finding it more important than ever to spend some silence in the morning and uh, take that slow cup of tea and really, uh, you know, reach out to others who know, you know, understand your situation. So um, I appreciate that question and ask it for myself often. And I would just say, Andy, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> if you said doing exceedingly well, I would really, we'd have a completely separate conversation than, than what we're intending to have today. Um, you know, uh, you're in the business of caring for other people. So you spend most of your time asking other people how they are doing and finding out about them. So let's let our audience get to know you a little bit. Let's be, um, let's be a little Lynn centered for, for the next little bit. Tell us a little bit more uh, about you away from uh, your work and away from the book. Oh, sure. Wow. Is there a Lynn outside that? Yes. Um, so I, I was born and raised in Southeast Missouri on the banks of the Mississippi River, kind of halfway between St. Louis and Memphis, and uh, was raised in uh, United Methodist Church, and my parents weren't super religious, so I don't have a lot of, um, you know, people in my back my background telling me I needed to be a minister or I couldn't be a minister. It was just... Um, not so much part of my growing up, but as I became uh, an adolescent, I became more curious and more involved and actually started dating a Baptist who I ended up marrying. Thankfully, I've been married 18 years to Ryan Harper, a scholar of American religion. And um, so, yeah, I guess I would describe my adult journey as one of being pretty peripatetic. I've lived in both Carolinas, New Jersey, New York, Maine, and of course, Missouri. Um, and all along the way, I seem to find myself in the path of working with older adults and particularly people nearing the end of their lives. And I found that tremendously rich. And I know you didn't want to steer right into ministry, but I just always have to say that as many different times as I've moved, I keep finding myself this theme that emerges and it's, it's being enriched um, by the lives of elders. And yeah, I guess I, I just sit at this place in this moment, so grateful for that trajectory in my life that I couldn't have predicted or controlled. I wasn't, uh, someone who was raised around my grandparents. My father's parents died uh, when they were rather young, and my maternal grandparents lived pretty far away. So um, I guess having this whole other set of grandparents on my journey in ministry has been really, really lovely and invigorating. So I guess there's no way of talking about me without talking about um, talking about my ministry. But to your question, Andy, there's more, there's more to say too. I, I love tennis. I love reading and writing. I love being outside, hiking, anything to do with fresh air, uh, which is so needed. I think in this moment, particularly. 
Well, and you're in the Northeast right now, which is getting to be that that perfect time of year to be outside the crisp air. Uh, so I'm I'm quite jealous of you, uh, despite <laughs> despite the lull in the weather here in mid September in Louisiana. It's normally uh, ridiculously humid down here, but um, you, you raise certainly um, some interesting things about your story, which kind of helps us take a little bit better glimpse into your vocational calling. Um, you know, for a, a lot of people there, um, you know, listening to this, they might be serving in capacity where they're kind of over a congregation as a whole um, and don't have the unique opportunity of ministering to a specific um, age group like um, a children's minister or like a, a youth minister or college minister or young adult minister or for your example, an older, um, older, you know, person. Um, you know, so walk us through that a little bit, you know, that unique ability to care for a specific age group. Um, walk us into that, that calling for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really a privilege to be able to, you know, uh, most people don't get to specialize that much. Um, but I think our churches are aging. So I'm sure you, Andy, and others who are pastors for the entire congregation uh, are, are, are in some ways minister of older adults as well. Um, for me, my my ministry trajectory originally took me to the clinical setting. So I was in hospitals um, completing my chaplaincy residency, my CPE units, and being assigned to units that were primarily frail elders who weren't acute enough to be in ICU but weren't stable enough to return home. And so I found myself very early on in my ministry um, being around frail elders and realizing that, you know, these people are often sort of dismissed, discarded as, you know, on their way out, um, not having a lot left to give or a lot more life in them. And what I found is the closer I came to people, whether it was in the hospital or in the nursing home where I ended up being a chaplain for seven years, that these people had incredibly rich stories, had inner lives, a desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, but they needed people to receive that and not simply treat them um, as less than a sort of past their prime. And so when I began thinking about life beyond the nursing home, I I really wanted to take that passion into the church. And thankfully, the Riverside Church is a place that's pretty open to ideas and um, where the culture is heading and how we can be in front of it. And do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. And when I began to sort of have these conversations with folks at Riverside, they had a great need. They have an aging congregation, and many of them felt like perhaps they weren't getting uh, the amount of attention that younger families and children were getting. And so it made a lot of sense to really live into this moment. And so thankfully, the church took a chance on it and had had ministers doing that in the past, but I think it had a gap for various reasons. And so I just feel incredibly honored to get to to step into that place. 
and I see it as a prophetic ministry. A lot of times people think of older adult ministry as kind of like you're a cruise ship director and you kind of take people on bus trips and hold the hand of the dying. And of course you do some of that, but it's also an incredibly rich journey to get to be with people in this chapter of life, in these chapters of life, and walk together through a faith journey that is ascending, not descending, and to get to sort of be a coach and a companion on the journey. So while a lot of my time is spent with older adults, it's really intergenerational work too. And so we're always thinking about how do we make this not generations in a bubble, but we know that children benefit greatly from being around older people. Um, and we know that older people benefit greatly from being around youth and young adults and that there's a really important interchange that can happen. So while I have this amazing opportunity to mostly be with elders, it's not exclusively in sort of an age bubble that it really to be prophetic ministry has to reach out and and go deeper. And I think the church is one of the last bastions of intergenerational community. So I really want to hang on to that and and see that blossom and grow. Just a small side note, uh, you know, I would give anything to be a senior adult minister right now if that meant I could go on a cruise ship or do any kind of traveling <laughs> with anybody right now. <laughs> <laughs> that would be uh, that would be quite remarkable. Um, you know, one of the the facets of of your work, as you've indicated, is that you are uh, you are caring for people uh, typically in the twilight of their years, um, as many people are experiencing uh, any number of health issues and uh, a health issue that's becoming um, you know people are becoming increasingly more aware of is is dementia, which is. Um, what you've written a book about that came out this year, the book's called On Vanishing uh, Morality, uh, Dementia, and what, means, what It Means to Disappear. Um, in the book, you, you take uh, a lot of cliches and hard questions about this terrible condition, uh, reflecting on the theological implications for individuals, families, ministers, and the church. And you wrote, we are taught to think that dementia displaces persons, turning their faces to blank stares and their bodies to shells, making them strangers to um, intimates. A, a thief, kidnapper, a slow motion murderer, Alzheimer's, purportedly robs, steals, and erases one's memory, mind, personality, and even one's very self. Um, take us a little deeper um, into the story behind writing this book. Mm-hmm. So after I completed my chaplaincy training, my very first real, quote unquote, real job in ministry was as a chaplain in a retirement community. And I remember on my very first day, an administrator, very kind administrator, took me to each of the floors in the facility. And he introduced me to the staff and residents. And when we got to the fourth floor, the dementia unit, He kind of did a quick, you know, run through the floor, and he then said to me, you know, you probably won't spend much of your time here. And the message, the not-so-subtle message, was that these people are so lost, are, are so forgetful, and that they've disappeared, in a sense, 
to themselves that I was expected to disappear from them, that my time would be better used with people who would remember me after I left. And, you know, when my spiritual antenna is working correctly, that's the kind of thing, you know, it should sort of send off alarm bells. Um, And I'm not sure it did at the time, but it really stuck with me that he said that. And what I found is I ended up spending more time there than anywhere else. And that these folks weren't disappeared from themselves, but that we had sort of withdrawn from them, those of us who don't have dementia yet, that we had sort of quietly given them over to their disease. And so when we hear in the wider culture, people say things often, and and I've heard myself say this, and we read in the newspaper that that dementia is, or Alzheimer's disease is the um, thief of your mind, that people are lost or gone, they've vanished, that it's the death that leaves the body behind, it's the long goodbye, the long funeral, all those things suggest that the person as person is gone. Instead of speaking about certain abilities that are compromised or lost, we somehow subsume the whole person in the disease. And I think this lends to a sense of stigma. And as a person of faith, this this shouldn't, you know, that that well with us, um, But that to say dementia does bring up these questions that other diseases don't. So when you have kidney disease, it impairs your filtration. But when you have a disease of the brain that impairs memory and thinking and reason, it brings up questions of what does it mean to be human? And I think Christians and other people of faith are uniquely poised to answer that. No, it's not how well you think or how well a particular organ like your brain works, it's that you are created by God. You have the image of God within you, and that doesn't change. That doesn't go away when certain abilities decrease. But what I often find is that ministers and pastors, if we haven't taken, and other people of faith, if we haven't taken a critical look at dementia, We can easily fall into the dominant culture, which says, yeah, these people have sort of disappeared and they don't really need a Bible study or or him sing or my full presence or our volunteers to come visit. And I think we're really missing something. We're missing the gift of their presence and the gifts that they have to offer us if we're willing to receive them. You're right um, about the cliches and misnomers and misunderstandings about the disease. And you wrote, we pass judgment on them as disease and thus essentially uh, deficient, leaving nothing to the unfolding and unfathomable. I fear we stop seeing them as persons who seem and start seeing them as patients for who they are. How do we need to adjust our thinking and talking about and treatment of those experiencing this disease? Well, I think, first of all, we have to realize and get in touch with the places within ourselves where we are limited. Those of us who are temporarily able-bodied or 
as a dementia activist, Morris Friedel said, the temporarily able-brained, that we have to get in touch with the places within ourselves that are fragmented, that are confused, that are scared, that aren't well or whole, and, and begin to not run away from those places, but to honor them, to nurture them, and in some ways befriend them so that we don't, when we encounter people who are experiencing difficulty thinking, who are sick in a sense, that we don't run from them out of fear of our own parts of ourselves that are like that too. So I think that's really important. Um, yeah, to this point around people being seen only through one lens, none of us like to be defined by our weakest part. None of us like to be defined by the things that we are ashamed of or the things that we don't do well are our limits. So why would we do that for someone else? And I think for people who are having trouble thinking, who have some kind of progressive um, disease that makes reasoning or memory difficult, instead of defining everything about them through that, we can say they're people first. They're people who have dementia. There are people who are suffering certain losses, but there are people who are still in relationship, who still have desires and gifts, uh, who want to know and be known, love and be loved. And so I think it's really important that we kind of use people first language, which is what we learn from our, our you know, disability activists who are always saying people first, people who have a disability. And so when we begin to do that, we begin to prioritize. This is a child of God, first and foremost. And then the other things that they're struggling with and challenges are, yes, part of who they are, but not the whole of who they are. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. This book is very personal. Uh, in fact, you wrote that we should change our language from if I get dementia to when I get dementia. Take us a little deeper here. Yeah, I came across this this turn of phrase from a nursing home administrator who said she she stopped saying if I get dementia and started saying when I have dementia. And for her, it was this way to kind of reduce some of the psychological barriers between us and them. And so I started doing that myself just to see how that felt. And at first it was, it was very hard because it's not something we want to place ourselves in. Um, but the more I did it, I found that my fear level went down. 
that if I could say dementia might be a part of my reality, I'm not wishing it to be, I'm not asking for it, but if it's part of what it might be mean to be human, and for 50 million people on this globe, that is part of what it means for them to be human, why wouldn't I embrace that in a sense and begin to not let the fear dictate how I would treat myself and others? And so for me, it's, it provides a little bit of, of reality check. It's My grandfather's father also had progressive forgetfulness on my father's side. Many of his aunts and uncles had Alzheimer's. Both of my parents carry a gene variant that significantly ups their risk of uh, late onset dementia, which means that I probably have that gene variant as well. And so it's, it's a reality, and I don't think denial does us any good in that respect. Some people who have made that switch from if I get dementia to when, and I've introduced that in certain workshops, they've told me that their fear has gone down. And yet other people really resist it. And I remember one woman who was very upset and she said, well, if you name it, then you claim it for your life. And for her, she she didn't even want to go there. So I'm not suggesting it's some sort of magic wand. But if we can begin to push in a little bit to people who have dementia to their lives and not push them off the spectrum of what it means to be human, but include them on this very wide and diverse spectrum, uh, neurodiversity, I guess, is the term we might use, then we can begin to be in community and relationship and our churches can reflect that as well that we don't have to be scared and, um, you know, struggle with how to fix people or what to do, but we can really be a big tent in that sense. So that, that's what, a little bit why I like to try on that switch um, from if to when. Well, there might be people listening to this that, um, that I have not, had direct contact with a family member who has experienced this. Um, and maybe even B, if they're clergy, maybe not are aware of members of their congregation have experienced this. You know, again, kind of like for you, that chaplaincy experience of you're not going to spend much time here because these people aren't going to remember you. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a very similar line, you know, visiting church members of, you know, you don't need, really need to go see them because they don't know who you are and they have no recollection before your time here. So let's speak a little deeper into the experience um, of those with dementia. You wrote, memory, it seems, is suspended in the tragic bound by the collective of trace sensitivities we call intuition, hooked to senses and resolute living in the dying of bodies held narrowly in the lurch of incalculable desires. It's kind of a summoning that this surpasses the storage and retrieval of discrete facts by individual brain. Memory is lodged in the gut, I think. Uh, take us a little deeper into the experience of dementia. Mm. Well, I certainly, uh, I certainly resist saying I, I know what it would feel like to have dementia. 
I have a number of friends who have a diagnosis and I can listen and try to understand their experiences. And there's also a growing body of literature of people writing autobiographically about their dementia experiences. And I certainly recommend this for people. Christine Bryden, for instance, uh, is a Christian person of faith and has written from the inside out about her own experiences. But I think what's really important for those of us who don't have dementia yet is to listen closely to people who do, A, and B, to plumb what, what is memory? So if we only think of memory in terms of kind of a computer a recall of certain facts, I think we're missing the deeper layer of we remember things in our bodies. And so we know that just because our first few years of life, I can't recount my parents caring for me or my mother breastfeeding me, but all of those impressions of love and care and nurture have gone into my life and giving me that secure foundation of love. We don't doubt that when parents do that and other loved ones do that for young children. Why would we doubt that on the other end of life when the person maybe can't recall in the sense of that explicit recall, but certainly carry within them the capacity within their bodies, and I say the memory of the gut, to know whether they've been embraced in an environment, whether they've been loved and cared for and heard or not. And that's something that really transcends um, this kind of computational view of, of memory. And so as a person of faith, that makes a lot of sense for me, that the Holy Spirit comes to us we say, you know, we're taught to believe with um, size too deep for words, that in some ways our view of the divine is one that's beyond words, that is the memory of the gut, that isn't something that's just in our, you know, hippocampus or in a particular part of our brain, but that encompasses all of who we are beyond our capacity for putting together a really great sentence or prayer or thought. And to me, that provides some comfort. And so when we're talking about the experiences of people with dementia, while I don't know exactly what they're experiencing, I do know and have a sense that it can't be that much different from what I experience. And that can be a feeling of love and care beyond what is recalled or spoken even. As a chaplain, you've witnessed a lot of daily interaction and final care of people suffering with dementia and the toll it takes on the body and the family of the person suffering. I can imagine that experience day after day, year after year is pretty taxing on you as an individual. So how do you manage that stress and, and the awful nature of caring for those who experience um, such a debilitating uh, disease. You know, I think I've had the privilege in some ways of being a wrung out. My mother was 
very much day-to-day caregiving for her father, my grandfather, who had Alzheimer's for over a decade. And I've been close to many other carers who are much closer to the sort of round-the-clock realities. And so I want to make a distinction between being a chaplain in those situations and then being an in-home or day-to-day caregiver for someone and and honor that kind of exhaustion is something uh, of perhaps a different order than those of us who are professional caregivers. But that said, I think it is really important for all of us who find ourselves day-to-day amidst vulnerable people that we ask ourselves not only what are we giving, and you hope you are giving so much of your heart and yourself, but also what are you receiving? And are you allowing those to whom you minister to minister to you? And so what I mean is, for instance, on the dementia unit, I would pass by a woman named Clara, and I mentioned her in the book, and she would always be reaching out her hand. And if I would stop long enough, she would she would touch my face and my jawline and in a sense give me a blessing and an an anointing. And I can remember just stopping and receiving that on certain days when I really needed it. That she was in a sense ministering to me. So I think it's so easy as people who are drawn to caring work to feel a sense of that we are in control, even of care, even of something like compassion, but to begin to form within ourselves the capacity to also receive, to sit and and be with another, and to also to have ways where we can come away from those environments as well and have people who understand who get it. And so for me, having other chaplains and being in touch with people who are doing this work is so vitally important to, and to be able to take off any kind of mask or need to appear a certain way and just really uh, be vulnerable. And I think that's what being with dementia has taught me that it is teaching me. I'm, I'm certainly not there. But it's more important to be present than to have an answer or to be perfect. And this is something I'm constantly being called back to. And as ministers, we're we're often, uh, you know, under the microscope, you know, that sermon didn't include this or the Bible study missed this. And we can internalize that and believe that we have to go into every setting being totally prepared and impenetrable um, and have all of our stuff together. And being with people who that illusion is gone can open that ministry in a different way that that we can fail, that we can be limited, and that, that isn't going to make us crumble. We're not any less than because of that. And I know that's, um, for me at least, that's a daily Uh, daily struggle because I want to be right on point and not miss the mark, but it's also really liberating when we can live into that.
Let's talk about the church. Uh, where does the church fit into all this? I think the church is uniquely poised to be on the vanguard of caring for elders and caring with elders with dementia, partly because we have an ethic, unlike many institutions, that doesn't base care on someone's capacity to pay or to repay. Uh, We have an ethic that ideally should guide us to care for the least of these and that by caring for them, we're caring for Christ. So it's not a charity model we, where we're doing a nice thing for these poor people, but that we're actually interfacing with Christ when we um, offer ourselves to the least of these. So I think our ethic com- compels us, and we have the structures. We have the care structures in place, whether you have Stephen ministers or other lay ministry groups There's a priority on relationship and care across generations, and it's sort of built into the fabric of almost any church I've ever encountered. It might look different, but whether it's support groups or AAs that meet in the basement um, or these other kinds of care structures that are informal, we're, we're set we're set to do so. We, we have the ethic, we have the structure. I think it will just take um, the will and the capacity to see this as a ministry, to see this as social justice, as not something sort of on the side, but the center of who we are. We're an aging society. This isn't going away. So we can either deny it or we can live into it as perhaps what could reignite a revival in a sense in our churches. Um, that you are the church known that from womb to tomb, you are there for someone. That people want to retire and join your church because they know you all do older adult ministry well. That you do caring for the sick really well. And that that's exciting to me, that potential. We're not there yet, but I think the church is uniquely poised. How do we develop a, a working theology about dementia and those experiencing it? Well, I think it starts by being with people who have dementia. Let it emerge from those relationships. It will change your theology, probably, unless maybe you already have (laughs) um, a theology informed in that way. But start with the relationships. Really listen. What I found is my ministry with people with dementia led me to silence, led me to the contemplatives, to the cloud of unknowing, to Julian of Norwich, to the dark night of the soul. John of the Cross led me to Henry Nouwen, the Larche community. Let those relationships lead you in to a deeper relationship with the Christ who loves beyond capacity, who gives priority to relationships over capacities and abilities. 
and we'll be changed in that way. Our churches will be changed. Our theologies will change. We'll begin to see God not as some kind of disembodied mind with a series of thoughts and propositions, but God is on the ground. God is in in the person who's struggling to find the word. God in our own limitations. Um, so yeah, I'd say we, we start we start with relationships always, as as Jesus seemed to always do. You alluded to this earlier, but I wonder if you can help congregations think a little bit, um, you know, more deeply about this. Is how do we how do we care, better care for those that are caring for people suffering with dementia? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what often happens is people who are caring for people with dementia or other terminal illnesses. There's a a shared isolation or a shared stigma. So something we haven't talked about is dementia and the diseases that produce dementia are often stigmatized. So people lose friends, um, report a great deal of loneliness, and their caregivers kind of have that shared stigma as well. Anything that churches can do to offer companionship. It's really nothing magic or complicated, but offering some kind of system and network of care, whether that's calling every other day or running an errand or being with the care partner's care receiver to watch a movie together to allow that person to go shopping or go for a walk. To really think about the simple things we can do on a personal level. And then if we want to begin to think about programmatically, does your church offer education programs about dementia or other illnesses? Does the church offer its space for support groups through the local Alzheimer's uh, Association? Does the church consider having a memory cafe. Please look up what that is. It's exciting work. So can it bring it into a programmatic element to make worship services more dementia friendly? So you have the personal and the programmatic that hopefully can be, can work in tandem and that none of this is done sort of in a vacuum or we build it and then they come, but it emerges from the soil of relationships and hearing from care partners. What is it that that you need? Would this be helpful or would this? And, and allowing things to kind of, I guess, emerge organically as opposed to we have an idea of what is needed. Uh, and then and then build it and then are frustrated when no one comes. But that we start with that ground of uh, the people in our midst that we already know. And we start to name dementia, bring it out of the shadows. We name it in our pastoral prayers. We name caregivers. We name caring as a sacred work. I've always heard if you don't say it from the pulpit or in your prayers, don't expect to hear it later in your office. And I, I really believe that. So 
And then start just naming it. Um, and, and naming that work as, as important and that those people are seen and heard and valued. You unfortunately had to release this book during a pandemic, um, and yet you are getting responses from your readers. Um, what kind of responses are you getting? Mm. Yeah, I, last week I heard from someone who sent me her father's entire memorial service. This is a complete stranger, and her father had died from dementia, from a dementia-related illness. And and I was so humbled she had used parts of my book in the worship service. And she had said in those final months of her father's life that encountering my book allowed her to encounter him in a new and expanded way. I was so humbling. And I'm not saying that as sort of like a plug for my book, but it, it it's humbling to me that when we start talking about dementia in a human way, as opposed to only putting it in a disease context, which has its place too, but when we pull it into a faith context and into art and literature and thinking about it in a in a broader way that people can enter it in different ways. And so that was one that was particularly moving. And I hear from others who say, you know, I, I can't really go there yet. Uh, thinking about saying, say, when I have dementia. But you've offered me a portal to think a little bit differently. And for me, that's that's important too. I want to be part of the conversation, not that we all have to agree, but that this is not something that's shameful to talk about. The pandemic has also brought to light, and this is so incredibly painful, that people with dementia are dying at alarming rates from the coronavirus, many of whom are living in nursing homes. And so to have this book released in the moment when deaths were peaking in New York City is really almost too pointed and too much to reflect on, other than to say that we as a society have to begin to take seriously how we want to be treated in our old age and when we have frailty of mind, and that these institutions, in a way, are not properly protected or regulated, that they don't seem to be a viable solution going forward. And I think if this pandemic teaches us anything, we have to look at our care structures in this nation to make it easier for people, families to thrive. And so I would never have chosen for my book to come out in this time. And yet there's a, a hidden gift in it. And that I hope it can be part of this conversation to shift how we treat elders from now going forward. Well, if you want to stay connected with Lynn, visit lynncastilleharper.com. Follow her on social media. 
of course, go out and purchase On Vanishing wherever books are sold. Uh, Lynn, thank you for giving us an honest glimpse into uh, what it's like to care for those suffering from dementia and for inviting us into a uh, development of a more meaningful theology about how we care for those reeling from it. Thank you, Andy, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in.